Hey friends, we've got an exciting program that I want to share with you, our upcoming Climate Leadership Accelerator Into the Arena. It's designed for those of us who feel compelled to influence climate leadership in our organisations and communities. In the program, you'll deepen your understanding of the systems operating within the climate crisis and connect with an incredible network of leaders, challenge your own assumptions and develop a hopeful framework for action. So head to smallgiants.com.au slash into the arena to learn more and apply. This podcast is supported by Bank Australia, Australia's first customer-owned bank. Bank Australia invests 4% of its after-tax profits in projects that benefit people, our communities and the planet. To find out more, go to bankost.com.au, where you bank every day does make a difference. We are recreating community with consciousness, with purpose. That's really powerful. I mean, I think that's a way to think about us maturing as a species. Hi, I'm Diane Cotter from Dumbo Feather magazine, and you're listening to the Dumbo Feather podcast, a monthly series where we chat with extraordinary people around the world who are turning their skills, passions, and big ideas into meaningful work. This month, we're sharing a particularly special conversation with Krista Tippett, creator and host of the much-loved radio show and podcast, On Being. For more than 10 years, Krista has been asking the big questions of meaning to spiritual leaders, poets, scientists and philosophers, eliciting from them deep truths and wisdom about what it means to be human and to live a rich life. Krista is joined in conversation with Dumbo Feathers Editor-in-Chief, Barry Liberman, before a huge audience at the Melbourne Town Hall. The event was put on by our good friends at the School of Life. Hi. <laughs> Krista schooled us before, it was me in particular, on um, handheld mics over lapel mics or ear mics. And you were right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know like, stuff. Yeah, well, I told you lapel mics were made by men for men who have lapels <laughs> and no hair, no, no earrings and belts. And no earrings and... <laughs> It is an honour to be on stage with that famous voice (laughs) and um, I guess I have to start (laughs) with a question you may have asked yourself. (laughs) What was the spiritual (laughs) or religious background of your childhood? You know, I I found across the years that that is a magic question. And I think um, one thing that's interesting about it is that any of us would answer it a little differently Mm. on any day. Um, So, you know, I've, I've talked a lot and written about my Southern Baptist preacher grandfather. And he was the towering religious figure of my childhood. And when I left home, I completely rebelled against his religion and left all that behind. But as, I, um, as I've grown older, I, you know, I, I make a different sense of that. And I, 
I see that, you know, his religion, his religiosity was all about rules, which were always being broken. Everything was a slippery slope on the way to sex, basically. <laughs> um, and uh, <laughs> We know this to be true. Yeah. We, <laughs> um, but he was also, he was a person who was full of contradiction, because having said that, you know, the body was a fearful place for him. The body was perilous. Um, but he was also a really passionate, lusty person. And he was also, you know, his, his religion was really mean. Um, only Southern Baptists were getting into heaven. Like not even Northern Baptists, not Methodists. <laughs> and, um, and yet he was so loving and so funny. And he, he wasn't educated. He has second grade education. Um, and he had a really big mind, but he'd never, not just not been trained to use it, but I think been invited to use it. Hmm. And, and, but, but the way I would answer that question also, as when I was writing my last book, I also started to think about how my imagination about this idea of the spiritual background of your childhood has really expanded as different people have answered it for me. So, you know, some of the answers I've gotten recently are, you know, the spiritual background of my childhood was loneliness. Hmm. Or the spiritual background of my childhood was love. You know, those are the lucky people. Hmm. And when I was writing my last book, I realized that it wasn't just my grandfather that was the spiritual background of my childhood. It was also the fact that, um, that I grew up in a family where um, we weren't allowed to ask most of the interesting questions. Or, and there were actually all kinds of truths that were lurking in our midst, which we weren't allowed to name. And I think that this part of life is absolutely animated by questions. It is all about inquiry, more than it's about answers. I mean, it's not just, it, it is also about convictions, but it's about the interplay between those things, and they evolve as we grow. Um, so, so recently, I've also come to think that that also was the spiritual background of my childhood, and, and it really has formed me, forms me today. So to have a picture of a young Krista Tippett in that context, what were you like as a child? And then as a young person growing up through that? And um, I was really intense. <laughs> and um, I guess a little bit like my grandfather, although I didn't think about it at the time. You know, I liked to think, but I wasn't really encouraged to think. So, in fact, um, I mean, we went to church three times a week, and the Bible was my reading material. And the Bible actually is, you know, if you, it's, it's very, very, very rich literature. So I did a lot of sitting with that text and being philosophical, I would say. And I couldn't wait to, I mean, I was living in this small town, and I didn't really know, I had absolutely no idea what the world beyond Oklahoma was, but I knew I wanted to be there. <laughs> so I wanted to get, I, I never liked, I didn't like being a child. And when you saw that silver lining on the other side, how did you get there? What was the process for you to get out of Oklahoma? I, I went to college. 
Um, but I, I went farther away. I, you know, very flukish as life can be. I went to a summer camp in Chicago, a debate camp. I did drama and debate. And, um, and made friends there who wanted to, more than anything else to go to this place called Brown University, which was in Rhode Island, which is just about as far as you can get from Shawnee, Oklahoma on a map of the United States. <laughs> and I knew nothing about Brown, but like, then that's where I wanted to go. And you went to Brown, and then you ended, you began, actually, your young adult life in Berlin. Yeah. Tell us a bit about that time and politics. Brown had this bizarre exchange program with East Germany on the Baltic. And um, so, I, you know, I studied German, and I, I went on this program, and then I just got very... Um, it's, hard, it's so hard to cast your mind back. The world was so different then, right? So Germany was this, Berlin was a fault line. And the world was divided and Europe was divided and Germany was the microcosm of that. And I mean, I was fascinated with the politics of it, but I also got very kind of emotionally involved in the, uh, this divided nation mm. and what that meant, that human level. So we'll come back to that time in your life a bit later because you, you did touch the centre of power and politics when you were there during your time there. I like the part, the next part, where you went, uh, you pivoted and your life changed and you went to get a Master's of Divinity. <laughs> yeah, you're so impressed that I'm I have so a Master's impressed. of Divinity. <laughs> so what... What, drove, what was the driver for you to create on being and how did it come out of that time in your life? What were you searching for? What questions did you have unanswered? Well, I, in Berlin, I was a journalist and then I, you know, finagled my way into this diplomatic job. And so I was very close up to power and it was a fascinating experience, and it was also really unsettling. And I couldn't even analyze for myself why it was unsettling, because it was, you know, it was a great path. And um, I was with people who were doing truly, who were truly, truly powerful. Um, but there was, I was really... Um, jarred inside by being with people who were who had these huge exterior lives and this great professional expertise i worked for this ambassador my last year there I was his special assistant in berlin he was a nuclear arms expert in an age of nuclear arms and he could give the most brilliant speeches and then we'd get in the car you know to leave afterwards, and it was like being with a kind of immature 13-year-old boy. And unfortunately, I think, you know, that specter is still very much with us in American politics. Um, but, you know, that's... Maybe, maybe it's because you went off and did a Masters of Divinity. <laughs> well, I did. I have said this man could never believe that he would drive me into Divinity School. <laughs> um, yeah, so I started to question that. And then also I was really 
interested in living in a city where, which was divided into really the, the two, two ideologies, two completely contrasting political and economic systems, and seeing how human beings work with what they have, mm. and seeing how, um, you know, in, in the West, where everything was politically comfortable and, and privileged, and where the possibilities were endless, and I, you know, I saw that people could have a really superficial, impoverished life. And in the East, where they had nothing to work with, um, I saw people who created these lives of great intimacy and dignity and beauty. So even as I was working at that level of high politics, which seemed to be the most important and powerful place to be, I, I was getting fascinated with this human level of existence and feeling like, you know, that underlies and also defies um, kind of the calculus of politics mm -hmm. and feeling like that's where I wanted to be exploring or and of service, really. So what led you to create On Being? Why, why that idea? And you fought very hard for its existence. Yeah. Why? So I went to divinity school, which just means I studied theology. And... Um, <laughs> And I um, came out, and I still uh, had, I'd been a reporter, right? So I still had, I think, a journalist sensibility. And I had this new theological education and this new sense of how rich and deep and kind of wild and muscular um, uh, Theolo the, this human discipline of theology and the spiritual traditions are. And that was nowhere represented in what got covered as religion or who got covered as religious voices. And also just, you know, this, this part of our lives that we call religion, spirituality, is as varied as every life. And it's important, you know, this, I mean, this is a part of our lives out of which we are making decisions about the other things we take more seriously, like politics and economics. And um, so I just, I don't know, I just, I just, I just, it felt just unacceptable to me and kind of crazy that we didn't know how to talk about this part of ourselves. And so that was my, my motivation. One definition of conscience is a person's moral sense of right and wrong, viewed as a guide to one's behaviour. And I feel like the territory you traverse with on being, you're trying to create or, or reclaim a space of shared value. And we seem to be witnessing a war of moral ideas. Yeah. How do we navigate different views of right and wrong? Yeah, I think our, our whole moral values conversation politically, societally, has been simplified in the name of right and wrong and good and bad. And it's turned into these screaming poles and um, it's people with convictions and absolutely no questions left alongside their answers, at least that they would share in public. 
And so what we have in, in our public life, I feel, I mean, I've, you know, I, I know this is true in America. I, I don't think you're as crazy as we are right now. So. <laughs> um, but we, what, we're, what we're longing for, I think, is a more robust vocabulary to speak about the complexity mm. of the things that are before us the challenges before us, not this position or that position. Um, you know, and, and even that idea that you can have two sides mm. to any of the most important questions before us, that there would be, that we would, that we would flatten it out to two sides. Um, so yeah, I think conscience, I was thinking when, when, the, when you told me the subject, you know, it is connected to consciousness, but it's kind of like applied consciousness, right? Um, consciousness takes in complexity. And I do, I do like this language of moral imagination, which I think gets a little bit out of the box of just being about right and wrong. And, and that gets at not just what is right and what is wrong, but what are we measuring that by? Like, what questions are we asking of any decision before us? And, you know, you and I were talking before we came out about business and the way businesses are organized. And, uh, you know, the, the question of what is good for human beings. Now and going forward. Yeah. yeah. Is not... That's not, the, that's not a driving question, and it could be. We are bombarded with so many frightening images and sound bites about the state of humanity. What do you see when you look at the political, environmental, and social issues of our time? Right. Um, you know, I, always, I, I say and write about being full of hope and having an abundance of hope. But I, I distinguish between hope and optimism. And I, you know, I want to say, I know some people use the word optimism the way I use hope. But for me, optimism you know, has a bit of a connotation of wishful thinking. You know, we hope, but hope, it, to me, is, um, uh, is robust. It's, it's reality-based, right? It takes in the complexity, and it is a choice. And it is living according to that choice. And it's a, it's a renewable resource, and you know, it's something that you, you do, and it becomes muscle memory. Um, and that we need, to, we need to hold each other. We need to accompany each other in that choice. Um, but I'm not hopeful about politics, because that, right, that would not be reality-based. Right? I, and, I, and I think it's, it's, a, um, it's a confusing time right now. It's unsettling because that part of our life together is where we want and have been trained to look for leadership and modeling and the way forward. And I mean, we could analyze for hours what's gone wrong. But it's interesting right now, you know, in every, I've just spent most of last month in the UK and there are all kinds of different dynamics in different places, but there's something going on that's global, right? There are, ec there are echoes of the same thing. There's some dysfunction. Um, so, 
And I think what that does, so I think, so I think what that does is it hands the responsibility back to us, right? That's, I, I absolutely do have, I see an abundance of um, fabulous people and projects and initiatives and, you know, people really leaning into the generative possibilities and leaning into the possibility of healing um, and of reinventing what, what life together means. Um, but if we, if, we, if we continue to pay too much attention to, to politics, then we can, we can fail to see that or to take seriously the generative things that are happening in our midst. In your magnificent conversation with um, the French Buddhist Mathieu Ricard, yeah. you were both discussing, he was, he, before he became a, a Buddhist monk, he was a, a scientist and you were in politics and you were both, you had this amazing moment in your conversation where you had observed as young professionals, highly successful people, in your words, brilliant people with empty inner lives. Yeah. What differentiates those who are successful from those who are great? Um, yeah, I think greatness does you know i i if the when i think of great people there is there has been a connection made between inner inner life and nourishing that and outer presence in the world i mean you know Here's another way I've thought of, so I wrote, I wrote a book about wisdom and I realized after I'd done it that I'd never defined wisdom. <laughs> um, so then I had to think about how I define it. So the thing about wisdom, the thing that's, that distinguishes wisdom from success, you know, a, a wise life, I think, it's, it's not that a wise life can't be a successful life or can't be, or, you know, and it's connected to intelligence, it's connected to knowledge. But I think the measure of a wise life, and we can all cast our mind to who those people are. It's not just Gandhi, you know, and Martin Luther King Jr. Like we've all had these wise people in our lives. And the measure of that is the imprint those lives make on other lives around them. And to me, that, to me that's, and the quality of that impact. So, I mean, that's, I think, what I'm paying attention to when I'm saying, when I'm thinking about greatness as opposed to success. So, from everyone that you've met and all these incredible conversations yeah. that you've had, what do you think is the foundation of a meaningful life? The foundation... That's a hard... That's a big question. Recipe? <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, that's easier. Yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think that the... So I, I think that the, the exact recipe is going to absolutely vary life to life because the foundation, or maybe like the template, is that, is that people work intentionally um, with, with the raw materials of their lives. 
And, and you know, those are different, and they're different at different times in our lives. I would say one thing I see in lives of wisdom and beauty and grace is that what has gone wrong for them, and there's infinite variety of that in human existence, it's not merely overcome or endured, but that people integrate um, that whatever softness came out of that, whatever compassion is possible for other people, that you're, you know, we've all had these experiences, your eyes are suddenly opened to what other people are going through. Um, and also a sense of one's own vulnerability. Um, whatever healing has been possible or whatever woundedness is still with you and you know that, people integrate that into their sense of wholeness. They're not whole in spite of that. They're whole with that. Mm. Who here heard the conversation with Glenn Beck that Krista had? Did anyone hear it? Yeah, a few people. That was... That was a, an amazing conversation and an excruciating conversation. Um, Glenn Beck is the polarising Fox News presenter, so he could not be more opposite to you in his audience, in his message. It's a very loud and very insistent moral position. You chose to have him on your show, which I think for many people is quite a sacred space. Um, what was that like for you, for him? And what was your intention going into the conversation? Well, I, I guess I wouldn't say that I think he's the opposite of me because mm -hmm. the reason I decided to invite him on the show is because although he is, um, he's very much um, on, a, on, I hate the way we divide ourselves up like this, right? Like he's on the other side of the spectrum, although I don't, I don't, I don't like to even label myself, but he's, yeah, he's, he has been on Fox News, he's, he's, um, he was one of the people who was actually very passionate for a while and has completely recanted about, you know, saying that Barack Obama was not an American citizen. But the thing is, yeah, so Glenn Beck is a very polarizing figure associated, associated with some of the toxic uh, rhetoric and stridency that now is really out of control and kind of has virally taken hold of parts of our political system. And, but the reason I invited him is that he has also, he has been soul searching and he spent the last couple of years, he has actually acknowledged that he has, he has seen that he was, has been, that he's done damage and said that on Fox and in other places. And what I saw, uh, well, first of all, I, you know, I had a conversation with him on the phone, I, and I believed in his sincerity, uh, absolutely, uh, in his authenticity. And what I also saw is that people on the liberal side of the spectrum 
wouldn't let him change, mm. right? Oh, that's so powerful. Yeah, I mean, we do. We want the other side to change, but we really enjoy hanging on to our resentment. Um, and so, yeah, I think what we were asking, and, and you know, the conversation, I, he was very ready to be, to, to have be in an on-being conversation, and I found that really moving. And um, we're so different uh, but there's a lot I admire in him and also just kind of in this journey he's on, really openly. And you also, you said something wonderful the other night, which I, I, I'll always remember, you were willing to have him on because he had questions. Yeah. Yeah, he's living his questions. And you don't tolerate stridency was the other thing that you said. No, I wouldn't. I, I mean, I don't have people on who uh, don't have questions and or won't share their questions. As, I mean, I, we, I honor deep convictions. I think we, we need deep convictions, but absolutely a, a hallmark of great lives and wise lives is that across the lifespan, you know, you know somebody like Desmond Tutu, you know, he is still holding his questions. His questions are as vivid as, his, as what he knows to be true. So, you're, I'm going to have to breathe into your kind of time because you've been very grounded because you've been on sabbatical yeah. for the last few months after over a decade of doing the work and single parenting. Yeah. What's that been like? Um, yeah, so I haven't worked since June 1st. And we, we pre-produced all the summer shows before I left. I, I went off work email. I haven't been on work email for two and a half months. And, um, and I haven't been on social media. And I... Um, I didn't watch. I haven't. Wa I didn't watch any video. And I mean, I really love good TV. I think we're living in a great era of great television. And um, I was surprised at how I, I, I. It took me some time to. Um, but eventually, the you know, just settling into that quiet, and to time that wasn't broken up. And, you know, I'm going to go willingly and quite happily back to my working life. But I think it's really important, and it doesn't have to be three months, that we, that we give ourselves, you know, chunks of time to settle back into this, into it real calm. To, to, know, to know those, what that place in us feels like. Because that's a, that's a healthy, nourishing place. Was it hard to prepare for that time? It would seem to me that with the work that you do... I had to do it. I had to, work, I had to, I had to wear myself out to get, to get to June 1st, yes. But it's funny because you talk to Pico Aya and unbelievable minds like that who are yeah. going to monasteries every year yeah. for a month or two to gather themselves, but you weren't applying that to your own life. 
Why, why weren't you practicing? Oh, well, I, you know, I said I was building something and leading something and you feel like... And then I was writing, so if I was on vacation, I was kind of on vacation and kind of not. It's bad. It's not a way to live. Because we do, we get stuck. Like, do we need to go to a monastery or a mountain to extract ourselves from everyday life, to find contemplation and solace and renewal? No, we can't, we can't. Because I want to do that. Because people can't. I know. <laughs> well, you should. But, but my children won't let me. But well, <laughs> That's right. Well, that's it. That's it. And when I think about why I couldn't do it over the last 20 years, it's also because there are times in your life and when you're raising children is one of them, when it, it's just not going to happen. Have people here in, discovered Technology Sabbath? Have you heard of that? Is technology that Sabbath? Yeah. Is that like... Jewish Sabbath? Yeah. It's like, well, it's, it's basically declaring in every week, and it doesn't have to be sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. It can be. Um, sometimes I do it like all day Sunday. Um, but you, it's basically, and you can do it with your family. And I know people who are really successfully doing this with young children. Um, I guess that's one of the interesting, um, I know that it's a question for one of my friend's dads, um, this idea of the spiritual life that isn't connected to religious practice and mm -hmm. how we can kind of take the best of religion and honour it, but yeah. without those traditional structures, it can be quite hard to tell your kids to get off the iPad because it, it's it the technical Sabbath. But I mean, Sabbath is such a brilliant invention. And I mean, I'm really... Can I, we rebrand? Can we? <laughs> um, so I think, I, th I mean, I think it helps to have a structure like mm -hmm. that. It helps to have, you, you, you actually, you have to, we, ritual, so, right. There's a lot that's gone wrong with religion. Um, like, there's a lot that's gone wrong with all of our disciplines right now, which is so glaring. But there's also huge intelligence there, whether you believe the transcendent piece or not. I mean, the school of life is kind of about this. So our need as human creatures for ritual... And, you know, we, we create all kinds of ritual and don't call it that. You know, your first cup of coffee in the morning... Just that way, whatever it is, you know, and it can be smoking a cigarette, you know, that, that people break away momentarily and, and get grounded. And so, I mean, Sabbath is fabulous. It's a fabulous container to say as a family. And I mean, I guess this would, this would have been part of an Orthodox Sabbath. We went, anyway, we went, no yeah. technology, right? Yeah. So it's kind of an ancient idea reinvented for a new yeah. age. Yeah. It's amazing. It, there's so much richness in the conversation around how to live a meaningful life. Mm -hmm. And you have so many listeners to On Being. And, the, and what's coming next? Because you've got gatherings, you've started the Civil Conversations Project. And in what's coming next, what are you responding to? What do you think people are longing for, that they're finding where you are? 
Well, don't you think one of the, a great paradox of our technological age is that it is leading to us wanting to get together in the flesh? We live in the age of convenings, 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 convenings. We're like reinventing being in the same room. We, we had this conversation that someone actually came to um, <laughs> my husband and I and said, oh my God, I've met these guys. They've got the best business idea ever. It's going to go off. It's people in a building together, all at desks, working, like working in a hub. It's like Facebook only live. <laughs> yeah. And, and Dan was like, like what? Like the world? <laughs> <laughs> like reality? <laughs> yeah. We're trying to find each other again. I mean, we, in a very short span of time, seen through the scope of history, you know, in 50 years, we've, a lot of the structure, a lot of the extended community that people just were born into has fallen away. And that's extended families living together and it's religious uh, identification and religious communities. Um, you know, the nuclear family was invented in the mid-20th centuries. It's completely unnatural. It's, I think the nuclear family is really hard on marriage, like just deadly to marriage. And even to, to children, I mean, we're not supposed to be left alone um, with, you know, just with this small, you know, tiny little intimate group. Um, so, but what's interesting about now is that we are actually recreating community in all kinds of ways. I mean, School of Life is another example. Um, you know, there's co-working, which is maybe what this was. Um, co-housing, there's all this interesting stuff happening in the States. And also just these convenings and convening communities where we come together. So, so I think this is really interesting. It's like, it, this goes back to consciousness too. It's like we're reinventing things that we, that we have always needed, that we need. But this time it's not inherited, it's chosen. So we, we, are, we are recreating community with consciousness, with purpose. That's really powerful. I mean, I think that's, I think that's a step, a, that's, a, that's a, a way to think about us maturing as a species. Do you think we'll be able to do this in time? I don't know. That's the question. I'm hopeful, but... This, there's, there's, there are a lot, you know, I don't, I think 2017 has nothing on 1917. That was a much worse year, mm. right? You know, there was world war and there was, a, there was lots of genocide brewing and, uh, you know, there were trenches and refugee crises that make ours look like nothing and global depression. So it's, it's actually good to get that kind of perspective, but, but, the, but the challenges we have are 
existential, right? The ecological, they're, they're, they're also, you know, they're much less hard to see and count and reckon with than 50,000 people died in the trenches today. But there, it's like these generational challenges that if we, you know what I'm saying, we don't get our act together, we could really go off the rails. Thank you for holding the discomfort for all of us. I think we'll open to question time. We might start over here. Hi, I'm gonna be a bit selfish and start with a thank you. Um, on Being was the perfect um, companion to being in hospital before a major surgery, mm. especially the episode about the body directing itself to healing. So oh. thank you very much. Um, I really enjoyed the Glenn Beck episode. I wonder if in the future there won't be a Krista Tippett meets Donald Trump episode. <laughs> if there was, what would be the first thing you'd ask him? And what's the first question we should ask the Trumps of our life? <laughs> Such a great question. Oh. <laughs> Such a great question. Yeah, it is, except um, I wouldn't have Donald Trump on the show. And this is not a political statement. It's just that he's not a, he doesn't have any questions left <laughs> alongside his answers. Um, I also don't interview sitting politicians generally because they just can't. They can't actually be revealing and thinking in real time and saying, um, here, so here's what I want to say. I, I don't know if the Trumps in our lives are the actual, are the people we need to be talking to. I, I, I think there are, I think one way we get kind of paralyzed in thinking that we can't make a difference is, is by looking at the most extreme, difficult exemplars of the other side and thinking that if I can't get through to them, What's the point? And you know, you can imagine um, how that encounter would end, and and what's the point? But but you know, I would say I I don't know if there's such a thing as the center, or if it's very interesting if there is. But like left of center and right of center, all the way to those extremes, there are people who who have some curiosity and some searching, and where, where maybe we don't have answers in common, but we, have, we share some of the same questions. So I think, I think that's where we should look. I think we should just give the Trumps in our lives a rest and not be, not orient towards them, because that's what we do. I realize when you become president of the United States, then people orient towards you, but in this case, I. I think we need to let a few people who need to do that do their jobs, and the rest of us think about what's really important. Like, I'm going to say this, this may embarrass you, but so I was at the White House, which is this amazing center of Melbourne White House. It was a the joke. Melbourne White House. It was a joke. Yeah, I've been that to the other one too. A reality. <laughs> Was it? Well, yeah, well, we were like, I oh, will call it that. And if anything ever goes wrong over there, there's this, you know, we'll have a White House here. And okay, well, I'm just going to say something audacious. I, I, there's this thought. I like to do this thought experiment of thinking. A hundred years from now, what will someone look back at on whatever the date today is, August 16th, 17th, 
2017, what, what, will, what will be, have been happening on this day that was actually planting the seeds of the future? And I, I'm not sure Donald Trump will be remembered um, or in that equation. I actually think some of the things that are being incubated in places like the White House, you know, impact investment, thinking about the um, sustainable, ecologically, uh, you know, not just ecologically sustainable, but ecologically nourishing business and enterprise. Those are hopefully, I think if we survive, and that it, it is an if, if we survive with anything like civilization intact as we define it now, it's this kind of thing that is building that future. So part of the challenge of being alive in the 21st century, I think, with all this distraction, is being intentional about what we are paying attention to. And again, what we are orienting towards. It's not like we have to or should ignore that that stuff is going on. But we don't have to orient towards it. I'm so bad at this because my answers are really long. Yeah. <laughs> that was a great answer. Thank you, Krista. I just want to sort of preface my question with a quote. Um, if the ability to tell right from wrong should have anything to do with the ability to think, then we must be able to demand its exercise in every sane person, no matter how erudite or ignorant, how intelligent or stupid he may prove to be. And my question to you would be, how can we help increase our own moral imagination or indeed help other people who seem more ignorant to increase their own moral imagination? I think that one of the most important callings right now is to be a calmers of fear. There's so much fear going around. You know, you can argue about whether it's justified or not. It, it doesn't matter in our bodies, a, a, a brain and a body that is experiencing fear perceiving a threat is, becomes literally, we, we become literally unable physiologically to rise to our best selves in a condition of fear. Um, we become un, unable to think. And, you know, it sounds like a very kind of simple, it, it's a very simple kind of quiet calling that I feel um, could just be absolutely fundamental, and it like I just I'm just do it where you are in your spaces, in your family, in your children's school, in your neighborhood. It's not it's not something that you have to go out and do somewhere or start a club. But if we can create spaces for people to um, to not to to let to feel safe. Um, that it's safe. You know, the truth is we're, we're talking about people sharing their questions and sharing their vulnerability, but in fact it's not a reasonable thing to ask of strangers in a lot of our public spaces, the way they're constructed. It's not reasonable. So creating spaces where that is reasonable. I, I think that, and it, you know, it is lovely that it's, that it's so simple, but it's, it's, um, it's not... It's not instinctive for us now to do that. We, you know, we, we go in defended and we go in presenting and we go in advocating and we, 
for the best possible reasons we do that, but we, we, we push everybody else back into the same mode and we have, to, we have to get out of that mode and we have to be hospitable in helping other people get out of that mode if we want the best of them to be present. Krista, on behalf of everyone and myself, thank you so much for the tonight. Thank you. Thanks for joining us again for the Dumbo Feather podcast. This edited conversation of the original event with the School of Life was produced by Beth Gibson. The music you hear is by Dennis Liu. To hear more about School of Life events, head to theschooloflife.com. And if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to the On Being podcast and check out their website at onbeing.org. Stay tuned for next month's conversation or hear it first by subscribing to the Dumbo Feather podcast on your favourite pod channel. For more conversations with extraordinary people, subscribe to Dumbo Feather magazine at dumbofeather.com. We deliver worldwide. Thank you.